This episode of the Noble Warrior Podcast is brought to you by C.K. Lynn Mindset Coaching for Entrepreneurs. Whatever mental blocks in your life you want to overcome as an entrepreneur, fears of failure, inability to take the actions you know there is to take, fear of success, three steps forward and four steps back, or even that thought of not feeling deserving after achieving all the success. Coaching is one of the most valuable tools you can have. It's an investment in yourself, and it can yield some of the highest returns. C.K. Lin has the skills that will empower you to achieve the most accelerated results you've dreamed of. To help you get started, C.K. is offering podcast listeners a free strategy session with him, a $1,000 value. Visit TalkWithCK.com and schedule your free session today. I'm really excited to have our guest today, Jonathan. He and I, we met at Burning Man. Here's a narrative that I notice more and more. People yearn for a community. And uh, we have a lot of beautiful people in your camp. Um, some well-known, some not so well-known. And they, they found a lot of resonance in the community that you helped co-create it. What do you think is the thing that resonates with people so much about this particular camp? Okay, so Mystic, I mean, really the story begins in 1998. I have a dear friend, uh, Daniel Fromer. And he said there's this crazy festival that takes place in the desert and it's called Burning Man. And he told, and I'd heard of it, uh, but at the time, like many others, I just thought it was a rave, like a big rave in the desert. That's kind of what I, that's what I'd heard. And um, I had tried to do, I was working on a documentary um, about the rainbow gathering. You know, there had been a prophecy, a Native American prophecy about in the future there'll be a time when all these tribes uh, of different colors and creeds and um, come together to, to sort of celebrate their unity and their oneness. And I wanted to, I was like, that's really beautiful. And they said, oh, it's the Rainbow Gathering. So I, I was preparing to do a full documentary on it. I went out to it even though I'd never been there. And I had a crazy experience. There's some wonderful things, but uh, it was the only time in my life I was act, uh, sort of uh, unintentionally dosed. There, I, I, you know, I was given a salad that had a combination of psychedelics or something else, uh, some other you know substances in the dressing, and I was not aware of this. So I ended up, you know, having like you know finding my heart pumping really fast, and I was you know tripping, and you know I was really freaked out, and ended up you know, leaving that event and I was actually spent like two days purging in a motel. Like I was really thankful I even made it to the motel and I was sick and purging this experience. And so after that, I had to cancel that film and uh, I was a little burnt from like sort of festivals or, you know, parties and all that. And so I was like, no, I'm not up for this Burning Man thing. And uh, I said, you go, you have fun, you know, but I just, I just gave this other one a try and it didn't, didn't work out the way I was hoping. <laughs> <laughs> so fast forward to Burning Man is actually going on and I get a call from him, my friend, and he basically just is a very simple call and he says, I, uh, I just left the festival to come back to this little town called Gerlach, uh, which is the nearest town to, to the desert. And he said, I'm on it. That back then it was in the 90s. There was a payphone. He's like, I'm calling you from this payphone. And he just said, on our friendship, you have to be here. Like, you just have to be here. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, I, I can't go into it. I have to go back right now to this thing. But I'm just trusting, like, you know, if you value our friendship, I expect you to be here. And I was like, 
okay. So, so it's almost like an ultimatum. In some yeah, ways. yeah, just, you know, again, <laughs> and so I hung up the phone and I kind of turned to my wife and I said, you know, I just had this conversation, he's at this thing and, you know, it's apparently, he says, I have to be there, like, and I, I he was serious, like, he was really, like, like in, in his... Uh, respect, reverence, love for our friendship and who I am. He was really saying, like, be here. You just, you like, so I would, I didn't have anything that was preventing me. I, I hopped on a plane from LA to Reno. I found a way. And that was, uh, of course, by the time I got there, it was, I think, Thursday or Friday on the week of the final, like, you know, weekend of, the, of Burning Man. And, and I had, I was there for literally, less than 24 hours and I went out I left the festival got on the payphone called my wife and I said I can't explain but you need to get on a plane and you need to get out here like immediately by tomorrow and so she flew out and that's the beginning so the three of us uh pitched together our small tents and put a little tarp above us and and I kind of feel like a, a camp at Burning Man at least certainly at the beginnings of it is about uh survival it's about like putting pooling your sources so that you can survive the dust storms and have a little bit of food together and just kind of help each other out so Mm -hmm. that very first year was the first year of our camp mystic although we didn't call it camp mystic then and then the next year like i left burning man that year and was so like my heart was open my I was, uh, you know, told my mind was blown. I was so creatively inspired and spiritually inspired. I just sort of felt like, for me personally, this is this playground and combination of art and community and spirituality and creativity and, uh, you know, radical free self-expression. And and at that time, there was actually more anarchy. It was everything, and I just sort of was like, you know, this is the best this is incredible so <laughs> I wanted to do a film about it because I was a filmmaker mm. and so you know it's kind of like what's your medium and I kind of as an artist it's like whatever your medium if you're a writer and you do something that really inspires you you're like I got to get my pen and paper out mm. and if you're a poet you write a poem or if you're a songwriter you want to do a song well I was a filmmaker at that time and you know I was like I have to make a film somehow about this thing and so I decided I was going to do an, a big art project the next year which again, for, for Bernie at Burners, they would really understand this, that often, for me at least, I'll be at Burning Man, and then as soon as I leave Burning Man, I get inspired, I get an idea, a concept, a vision for the next year. And I'm like, and you, and you can spend much of the following year preparing and putting it together. So for me, that was a project that was called Hands, mm. and the vision was to get as many people as possible to create a human chain of linked hands Mm. celebrating unity and diversity Mm. and uh, the film was going to be about the artists behind like all my friends that were going to help me manifest that project Mm. and so it was kind of like at the the real world uh, at the time that was the only reality show that was out and so we were like we'll film everything we'll get an RV we'll get you know we'll just film us trying to do this project going to Burning Man and see what happens and that was uh, so that year, you know, camp was more like 20 plus people because we brought everybody for the film and every, there were people that were like wanting to go to Burning Man. And that was really so the second year of camp. And camp just kept kind of growing from there, you mm-hmm. know, because every year, uh, like we, I, that second year, I brought Siberius Rex, C-Rex, who's really like, you know, one of the primary other key founders that's still uh, to this day is, you know, making camp thrive and grow. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like its back backbone. Uh, with me and others 
And, um, and that's kind of how it spreads, is that you bring those that you love and that you know would appreciate it. And that's mm. why I'm so indebted to Disco Llama. That's, that's Daniel Fromer's uh, playa name. Because mm. so, he knew, he just knew that, he knew me well enough to, be, to know like this is something that's gonna really rock your world and that's important for you. And, and then I feel like that's what everybody does. You leave and then you're inspired and so you're, you find the people in your life that, that you know it's also gonna do that for them and you invite them back. And, and so that's kind of how the camp grew. And then, but you know, Burning Man is 70,000 plus people. So wow. My- Mystic is, you know, never been more than, I think our largest year was 225 to 250 people. And even then we pulled it back and we try and keep camp no bigger than 200 every year because mm. we value intimacy. Right. And when it gets too big, you lose that, that really, that uh, intimacy. Yeah, even at 220, it's really difficult to know everyone. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of one of our goals is that even at the end of the week, uh, there, that you're not going to see somebody at camp that you don't at least know a little bit that you haven't you know recognized their face or see a connection with and so um yeah so that's kind of and, but mystic so i the way i would describe camp is um i often say it's like a satellite or an antenna and uh it's a collective uh, magnifier of our energy of the energy of the participants that create it or the community Um, And I feel like that beam of energy is sent out in the world and it lives through what we're doing. It lives through our art, through us being present, through whether there's yoga and healings and, uh, you know, thought leaders doing TED TED style talks or workshops. I was one of the the talks. And and, and there's parties at night and there's, Mm -hmm. you know, so there's all these activities. And so those are all projecting this energy that people that feel in alignment with it kind of resonate with and uh and that's how it continues to grow you know Mm. that's that's how it continues to thrive that was beautiful so community is one of those things that you know people continue to talk about especially um in in our modern times why do you think that is i mean you know um Community is really what it's all about. I, I think that community on a small scale is what our families are. You know, the family unit is it's, it's a small community. It's you and the people that you love and that you want to take care of and that you care about. And, and then that just expands. And, you know, there's tribes, which are collections of family or, or chosen family. And, you know, when it just depends on how far it spreads. But, you know, people feel a sense of identity in community when there's uh, commonly shared values. So, you know, it might be a city or a city-state in ancient times and then like a nation. Um, and then there's countries. And I feel like one of the things that we're, where we're currently at in our kind of global evolution is really coming together as a global family, you know, as a as a synthesized collective of humanity or there. And once you do that, you, you know, you find common ground or things that you all agree on or agree that you're going to honor, agree that are important, and it allows you to operate at a larger scale. I know it gets into things that people might consider controversial, but if you look at the larger body of the cosmos, and I guess what I like to say, I don't like to get into topics that people would 
not understand or think, you know, that, that might be quote unquote unverified or proven. But if you just imagine how vast and great the universe is, and even scientifically it's been proven how many galaxies there are, how many, um, you know, planets there are, how, how likely it is that there is not just life outside of the earth, but that there's, you know, the universe is teeming with life. So from that context, um, a, a planetary culture would only be welcomed into a larger galactic culture if it was um, mature, you know, so and, and a, a sense of maturity really translates into when you're not uh, going to be destructive or, or a direct threat to the larger community. So it would be like if you were at a play school with children and, you know, you had a room and you wanted all the children to play. And as long as they could generally get along and play, then they'd be welcome there. But if there was a little child that was in the collective that was, you know, taking a scissors and, you know, swinging it around or stabbing other kids, like that child would be removed. You know, it's, you'd have to make it so that that child was mature enough or capable of behaving with other children so that he could be part of that community. And so, like, that to me is one of the important things in terms of our larger culture right now in, in you know, supposedly what we call the year 2019 is operating from a place where we, um, like, there are just a few of these sort of central tenets where we understand how we're all connected and that everything is interconnected. Um, so this isn't really political at all, but, you know, this gets into, like, in the, how we treat our environment, how we take care of it, um, how we nurture it in, in our own, you know, to take care of ourselves in our own evolution and not, uh, not operating from a place of competition and warfare. Um, you know, if we could live harmoniously and be not desecrating the planet, then we could be welcomed much more openly into the, you know, galactic scene into the cosmos of other highly evolved and really wonderful inspiring beings so i know that's a large answer but it, you know it really does come down to this what you asked about camp and the mystic community i i feel like the people that are attracted to mystic and um that seem to be resonating with the energy and our values um values are a big part of what makes community thrive and work are, are people that um, even though we come from different walks of life and I think maybe different aspects of political spectrum, I certainly know that we're different religions, we're different um, ethnic backgrounds. Right, um, super diverse. Very diverse in that sense. Um, but I feel that these elements of getting that aspect of interconnectedness and interconnectedness not just with each other as humans but with other species and the planet itself and a real sincere desire to see uh, humanity and society and our planet thrive and, and to be a contributor. I feel like we are a collective of people that want to be contributors. And it's very in alignment with Burning Man because um, Burning Man, one of the things is participation. Mm -hmm. And I've always really loved that. You know, they've always said, even if you have a camera, we don't want people to come to this event or this community or this experience and be a spectator. A spectator is sort of automatically, in, intrinsically separate. So I'm on the outside, you're on the inside, and I'm going to take a picture of you. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a model of separation. Participation is the complete opposite where it's like 
there are, you might be there and I might be here, but we're not on two sides. We're, you know, it's, there's a level playing field and we're both participating in this play and this experience and this movie. So one person might be filming and one person might be acting, but it's, you know, you're both participating. And, mm. I, and, so there, and I feel like participation I love, but then in a way almost like one step further is this desire to collaborate and this desire to contribute. And one other uh, value that is one of our mystic values is um, what we call radical compassion. And so, you know, to be compassionate, to be, you know, uh, towards others, towards ourselves. So I asked that question because, um, well, I came from a startup culture background. Okay. My main responsibility was to curate an environment, a culture, an ethos, where it's conducive for higher performance. Okay. Right? And I, I got a taste of that alchemistic way. Um, it's culture, from my point of view, is not the sum of the individuals. It's an emergence, mm. right? From you know the unique magic, that's the secret sauce that everyone brings, and you know something magical happens when when you have just the right people, in the right container um, to just build beautiful things together. So. How much was it to be intentional? How much was it accidental? That's such a magical, and I use that word loosely or intentionally, um, um, that, that emerged from chemistic. You know, I, I think in, in all honesty or to be like, to look back, I think it would probably be 50-50. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I only say, because I, I, I feel like the accidental part would be more like the early years, you know, mm -hmm. because I mean, part of it was an always intentional because I feel like from and, and again, there are different leaders of Mystic and they're different, you know, there's different, you know, a few of the co-founders and they're different leaders and they're different contributors. And I so, so, you know, I feel like we each brought our like, as you just said, our unique special sauce. So for me, a lot of it was always prayerful. You know, that was kind of one of the angles that I always had was to take my forehead and put it down against the earth or the playa and you know be be saying a prayer you know saying I don't understand everything I don't know how this is going to unfold or how this necessarily works in the mystery but you know it's my prayer that uh that you know that what these these impulses in my heart you know for people coming together for people you know, loving one another and loving who we are, where we come from, like that was always there. But it was also accidental in the sense that it was in the context of needing to have enough water. Uh, are you gonna? Are you? Who's bringing the? Uh, you know, soap. Who's bringing the? You know, uh, some extra cans of beans. I mean, I mean, the early days it was very it was very uh, tactical. Yeah, and, and so it was. It was not like in the early days, and by early days I mean really the first decade mm. that we were getting together and saying like, hey, you know, not even like a business. Like even in business, you you have a board or you have a mm -hmm. collective of people that are going to sit down, look at each other, and say, okay, what are we doing? Right. What's our objective? How are we going to get there? Who's going to do what? It wasn't like that. It was. It was. It was very. You know, like who's who's coming year to year changes. Right. If you have a few people that are the same or that know how you did it last year, that's a blessing. You might not. <laughs> um, you know, and Burning Man itself was changing. And when you add in, like, you know, some years it was really about an art project a lot more. In the early years, it, camp was just much more of 
a survivalistic place where we could exist. Mm. And our focus was the art. Um, we were really like always doing playa art, like a bigger art project that we could contribute to the larger uh, experience of Burning Man itself. And it was only in the, la in the latter 10 years, you know, and more recently that camp started becoming like what in its current version or the community mm -hmm. and like all these just amazing, amazing people. And that there, for me, there was a really specific shift where it was originally more about Burning Man and my time and experience was more out in the city or on the playa. And then all of a sudden just producing and leading camp became a major you know thing and then and then it got to the point where a few years ago I realized wait I, although I want to continue of course doing specific art projects um, I was like camp itself this community and, and doing whatever we do and bringing all these people together and trying to give them the best experience I saw like that is my artistic contribution right. to the city and to Burning Man and to, to and to mystic itself you know like um, so yeah, it's almost like you're. If there was a museum, uh, it, you don't know it's a museum. You're just kind of hanging out and doing cool things with artists, and and then it grows. And then you know, at some point, you know, you're like, we should actually build something here. Like physically, we need to build something where we can hold all these artists. And and at some point, you realize while you are an artist that if your goal is that the museum itself is art, like then that becomes the project, mm. you know? And I know like, you know, one of our other uh, leaders of camp, um, Genevieve, AKA Jennifer Russell, you know, she puts so much uh, love and commitment and passion, not only into putting camp together and organizing and managing and visioning, and, but we have this mystic theater, which is our main kind of shade structure, but right. where, uh, our opening and closing ceremonies are and where the party is and where the talks and panels and workshops, a lot of them are housed there. And so just the uh, the actual construction of this from the scaffolding to the rebar mm -hmm. to draping it to, you know, covering all the walls with white sheets so that, you know, we can use um, mapping, computer, computer mapping and uh, projection. Uh, it's really like it's you know like I feel like that's her art project that's mm. her you know it's it's a living canvas and, mm. and then you could go even further when you add in the cosmic heart temple and our healing dome and the dining hall and the way that we cr create the neighborhoods we've got somebody who's got an architectural or um, you know city planner type background who works out our a map and so we ask people are you really more social or more introverted mm. um, and we and that's what's going to define where they are in in our camp and so you know people that you know need a little bit more privacy and intimacy in that way can have it people that want to have their door or their tent unzipped all the time and have people walking through that they can just say hey who are you you know that that's more <laughs> of a social neighborhood so but these are all uh, examples of intentionality mm. So this latter incarnation of the community has definitely been more intentional. And even now for our opening ceremony, um, that's one of the really big things is, and, and that, that I completely love that, that, that this has evolved into this. And, I, and I've learned a lot. Like I try as hard as I can to bring this consciously into my day-to-day -day life, into my moment-to-moment, -moment, which is what are your intentions? You know, mm -hmm. because it's like the, if you, get out of bed there's sort of the habitual actions okay you get up you go to the bathroom you get into your car you drive you know so you might go about things but the um, automaticity of things and then there's the cross-eyed like i said 
there's a wonderful story um, I remember I was told I think um, Sadhguru told me this story he was talking about again going back to it I seem to be resonating a lot this month with uh, Buddha with Gautama because um, maybe it's because it's his birthday but, or this month but he told the story and, it, and it's really about intentionality um, he was in meditation and um, there was a mosquito uh, flying that like you know landed right you know on his like eye. it was either his eye or his eyelid or something and he just um, you know swept it away uh, you know instinctively you know just as we, as I think anybody would relate to um, and then later on um, he, somebody that was that he, there was this, one of his um, early devotees or disciples that wrote a lot about the Buddha because um, he he made a he made this the Buddha granted him a, a boon you know he granted a him a wish a boon uh -huh. and his wish was that he could follow him around all the time mm. and because he just was so obsessed with him um, that he wanted to see him and that's one of the reasons we have so much detail and wonderful teachings of the Buddha because he probably we would not have it except that he had granted this person on. Um, uh, this boon of being of whatever he wanted and what he asked for was that he could Be always with the Buddha wherever he was it actually got got uh, the Buddha in trouble some of the time because uh, Those close around him didn't always want this guy around but he always was around and he wrote everything down And one of the things that he observed was this thing with the mosquito But but the interesting part was that like an hour later uh, it, it, the Buddha sort of came out of meditation and very very slowly like lifted his hand and did this motion where it just sort of graced his eyebrow and you know went back down and he asked you know what was that what was that you just did what was that about and he said you, you know it was it was related to the mosquito and the person said but the mosquito wasn't there you know it was gone and he said I he said yeah I, I recognize that but when I first did that movement it was not intentional and I needed to I wanted to do that express just use express myself in that way but do it intentionally and so it's just the degree the minute degree of the power of intention and doing doing every action consciously so at the mystic, mystic opening ceremony we sort of ask everybody just where are you at in your life some people are have just gotten divorced some people are about to get married some people are uh, you know just starting a new chapter in their life and everybody's coming at it from a different place but it brings everybody into the present and and it allows them to say I'm going to be here for the next 72 hours for the next week or and you know what is it that's important what is your intention for this time in your life and and it's not just to ask them but then we write down and record the intentions and we put them on this big board so everybody's face and picture and name is on our board and everybody else can look and say oh CK I you know I saw that your intention this week is to be uh, more intentional and <laughs> just just to, as an example meta meta uh, meta meta and uh, and and then they could say oh well we're doing an intentionality walk to the temple later or we're gonna do a bike ride and you know and and so everybody else is sort of empowered to help everybody manifest their intention mm. if somebody is you know and people are usually very honest sometimes we will say I'm going through a deep mourning period or I'm very confused right now in my life I barely even made it here my intention is just to you know have more self-love you know and so when somebody else sees that it, it empowers them to think oh you know, how can I help that person with that mm -hmm. and, you know, so 
so nowadays, I would say things are much more intentional. Mm. And I ask that question also because a lot of people are looking at high-performing organizations. I would consider Chemist to be, to be one of them. Having these magical uh, emergence phenomena, right? You can call it cool, you know, high-performing culture, whatever you want to call it. Just you know, there, things seem to be in flow. Yeah. Right. So how can you, I guess, package everything up in a playbook and then hand it to someone and say, hey, do this. These, this is the recipe to create a high-performing organization. Or must they go through the process as we share it with each other on the survival and the security and the you know, follow that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And then once you get enough infrastructure, then you can work on the self-actualization, self-realization, etc. Um, I think like many things in life, it's a both and. Uh -huh. um, I think that there is definitely merit and value in f looking at it from more of a tactical kind of, I guess you could say maybe business or strategy standpoint and looking at, okay, what are, what, you know, what are the elements? What, what, it, what do you do and what does it look like? Uh, and, and from that, you know, come up with some kind of a, you know, organized, written, uh, a, B, C, D of like, these are the elements that contribute to this, or at least that we observe contribute to this outcome. Right, and this I phenomenon. That, yeah, right. this phenomenon. And I think that that's effective and, and worthy and worthwhile. I also think that if you are only focused on that or only do that, it's literally only half the picture. Mm -hmm. Because it, it would be like, um, I'm trying to think of it. It, it, you know, I think of it a lot like a magic trick. And there's, I'm not talking about you know, uh, authentic magic. Because when I say the word magic, or I say Burning Man, excuse me, or Camp Mystic is magical, I, I mean, I'm talking about like true magic, like authentic magic that exists. In the what universe. does that mean for you? Uh, you know, it, it, the mystical, the, like the ineffable, the miraculous, the as miraculous. people call okay. it, like that which uh, is amazing and, 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 and yet we, we can't understand it, or mm. it, it's beyond our. Uh, ordinary comprehension, but it, but it happens, mm -hmm. you know. So that's different than a magic trick in right. the tradition that we have of like Houdini, David Copperfield, uh, Chris Angel. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great uh, Penn and Teller. I mean, you know, the, we, the, the list goes on and on of, of, of magicians um, who are have actual tricks that are not that are meant to look like magic and appear to magic and amaze people. Uh, but there is a trick, you know, there is a gimmick, there is some uh, so, sort of you can explain to them. And the, the, reason, the way that I would explain it and what you were asking is what makes that form of a magic trick. Um, hold on, just before I go on, there's some magician, oh, David Blaine, I just wanted to point out, just mention David. I was kind of going through this little list of magicians before and I left out David Blaine and I think he's pretty amazing. He's amazing, yeah. And I love what he's done with street magic and just, yeah, I just wanted to get him on the list too gotcha. because he's doing yeah. cool things. But with, with uh, magicians that are doing those kind of gimmick magic tricks that are phenomenal and people are love and are amazed, you know, any magician will tell you that the gift of the trick is in people not knowing. And that's why they're so obsessed and secretive about the, the trick and you know try not to let it re get released and what what anybody who's peel the veneer back who's especially now like you know, even on YouTube now there are the, like these videos of like, how did so-and-so do this trick and you know and what they don't understand is that 
it ruins it. Like the minute you, uh, the minute you can pull the curtain back and see a little man standing there who's who's the Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. the mystique of like the wizard disappears. Mm-hmm. You know, the the magic, the the effect of the magic trick is no longer kind of valid or fun and enjoyable, and and then you can't enjoy it anymore. So it's like this weird. It's not uh, even. It's not even just demystify it. It's actually devalue it even it, more. Yeah, because you actually see. The older man behind the curtain, sweating and pulling all the different levers to make the precisely zero about. Okay. So, so what I was going to say is, if we just do the tactical, strategic sort of um, type A business approach of this is how we're going to have the most intentional community, you know, or this is how we're going to manifest magic and success, you know, it it it, it would be like you know, it would be like half of a magic trick, you know, and so. I feel like the other half is the true magic, or what I'm saying is authentic magic, or the miraculous, or the mystical, or you know, um, it's it's, it's kind of like um, when you make an intention and you put a lot of effort into focusing on it, and you know, and then you let it go into the universe. If you don't have that last part where you let go, you've done your thing, you've made it clear, you've you know defined it, you've. You know, done some kind of ritual, so you've done all these steps, and they're really powerful and necessary. But if you if you hold on tightly and are then like, okay, now what? Now what? The outcome can't un- unravel and unfold. Uh, that's how I see the way the universe works: is that there's this last part where you need to let it go into this vast mystery and let the part that you can't control, that you can't uh, manifest on your own. Uh, happen, and that's how it happens. So um, uh, that's the uh, that's all I would say is that I, I feel like there's an imp- uh, important aspect of that. Uh, and what, one other thing that I would say about again, I'm, I'm, I'm using Mystic because it's a very specific community here, is uh, is that um, there's a large part of it which is like the collective, almost um, exponentially magnified. Um, aspects of what we're creating. So if there's one person who's really happy, uh, that's wonderful, but, or expressing joy and open and creative. And then, you know, but then when another comes in, it, it magnifies and it's a little bit more. And then there's three and then there's four. And, and then what happens is there's this collective energy. And so at that point, when, when it crosses some sort of threshold, somebody walks in and they're not in that same place. They're depressed, they're sort of jaded, they're cynical, they're not creative, they're, you know, all these other things, but they come into the room and like one of two things can happen. Either one, they just feel that lack of resonance and alignment and are like, leave because they're like, I don't like this, I don't feel comfortable. Too happy. Yeah, <laughs> and they reject it and leave. And then, yeah. but, but what happens, in, in my opinion, most of the time at Burning Man itself, which is when I say, oh, Burning Man, it's so magical, well, why would I still be going back to this place, this, this thing after 20 years? Right. It's this element I'm talking about right now. What happens is that that person comes in and it might take a little time and it might be a little challenging for them to soften, for them to be a little confused, or but at some point they just literally start to be absorbed and take on that energy. Mm. And you know, now I'm not saying they're gonna a hundred percent transform, but there's some aspect of that jadedness, that skepticism, that uh, sadness with re- life that um, 
is 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 released and is dissipated, and uh, and so I really do believe in that aspect of collective consciousness where there's this energy that's co created co-created by people, and then when people come into it, they are absorbed into it, and it just like I, in my opinion, the way I would describe it is, it just brings out the best in us, mm. and especially when the energy is one of authenticity vulnerability and support and i feel like those are all elements that we really encourage in our community you know so, so let's actually follow up with with two questions one is as a curator of this culture this environment how do you actually cultivate that right so th so that's one question the second question is because I also have heard people coming into a community like Chemistic is actually quite intimidating for them. And I myself, when I first were introduced to the energy, and it's like, wow, everyone's so self-expressed. What's the deal, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, is it authentic? And it was. So then, that actually, I, I can talk about my own personal experience. But when someone new coming into a new uh, culture, new environment, how do you adapt? to, well, one, check in with yourself, see if this resonates with you, and two, now that you say, okay, yes, it is, how do I adapt to this particular energy level? So I guess that's the two questions I wanted to ask you. Well, you know, I mean, we have, like, uh, for camp in particular, we have, like, a sponsorship program, mm -hmm. so the people that, you know, register for camp need to be sponsored by somebody, and the only reason is because, like I said, with only 200 and, you know, spots because we want it to be intimate at least that in its current incarnation we're at the point now where we want to cultivate you know a community that understands our values and that really are kind of excited and passionate to be a part of it and it's fine there's like I said there's over 70,000 people that are at Burning Man so there's so many places for you to experience the event and the, or the community and all of it so we're just saying if you're gonna come and and, and we have a lot of um, there's certain responsibilities and commitments that we ask of people and we also want to make sure that that there's an alignment there you know so so sponsorship is one of the reasons that's kind of we found we wasn't always like this but is the the basic thing is if you you've been there and you know what it is yourself and then you know somebody that we don't know then that's just part one is like if you feel like oh no they're they'll fit in they're they're one of you know they're they're going to connect with this they understand us and I think they're going to enjoy it then great well then bring them in but then you become their sponsor and and at the event itself that's really powerful because just in case something comes up they have a first line of somebody that can help them somebody that can say oh you know you haven't been drinking enough you're a little dehydrated and let me get you some water let me show you around let me um, if if by chance, and this is very, very rare, but if there was any form of uh, disconnect or conflict or anything, conflict resolution, that we have somebody that knows them, that we can kind of work with to say, oh, you know, like that, that, that's kind of part of it. So there's that element, and then we ask specific questions. We say, you know, can you look at our uh, website, our mm. manifesto, our kind of values, and what we're, what we're, how we express ourselves and what we're about, and if there's a resonance, then you know the two questions essentially boil down to um, what about what of our values you know resonate makes sense to you that you know that you like or that you resp respond to, and the second part is how do you think you could be a contributor to this? You know, mm -hmm. how do you see yourself, you know, being a part of this? And and that's the first line of us asking 
um, what are you good at? What are your gifts? What are your talents? And how, you know, how can we bring you in and welcome you into this um, family, whatever tribe? Um, so I guess I'm hearing two things. Right? One is the social filtering aspect of it. The yep. other one is self-selection. Hey, here are our values. Do you, self, do you identify with these yeah. to the best of your ability of understanding? And then, then you say yes, then you're self-selected. Yeah, and I mean, again, it might sound silly, but there are a lot of people that are like, hey, you know, I'm just going to Burning Man. I don't want to answer any questions. And that's totally fine. I respect that a thousand percent. You know, like I, if somebody said, I, I just want to go to Burning Man and, you know, have this crazy experience, have, you know, run all around, not need to be anywhere at any time, I would say it sounds, it sounds amazing. Like you're going to have a great burn. And this is probably not the right place for you to, you know, have that experience, you right. know. Um, and so, yeah, a filtering, but I feel like a filtering that works for both parties, for sure. everybody. Um, and, and the self-selection, very, you know, so. Um, and then, you know, but again, you're, as, if you're talking to me on a totally personal basis, like, sure. these are all, like, I'm just kind of breaking down how things have filtered out, and sure. I think it's working. I mean, you know, just observationally, I feel like, this is working, our community seems to grow and thrive and keep getting better. I'm definitely personally on the on that other side. Like What's me, the other you know, side? Jonathan, aka Cosmic Cowboy. The other side is like I don't really get caught up in any of the details. Like all of that is just, you know, there's a Yiddish term like minutia. Mm-hmm. You know, like to oh, me Oh I didn't know that's Yiddish. <laughs> I think it is. Okay. Uh, so many uh, you know, uh, to me it's the other side. It's like bowing down to the divine in humility, in vulnerability, in prayer, and just saying, you know, I want to, I want this to grow. I want there to be a vessel uh, where the most amazing people and beings can, and, and you know, share their gifts and can thrive. And that where, you know, there's like a very big uh, spiritual model. Uh, where you know yogis, uh, masters, uh, you know the goal of life itself, like one of the ultimate things, would be to have you know a bouquet of roses. But the roses are other beings that you're laying at the feet of the divine. That you're basically saying, I used my opportunity here to you know share the love to and to collect these roses like and it, it is a really good analogy because if you love somebody if you have a partner that you love you know what how do you express that well one way is and again in the in the traditional sense for many many years there wasn't a flower shop you didn't go to a flower shop no you would go out into the woods in the wilderness wherever you lived and you would consciously have this uh, experience where you were immersed in nature and you were loving nature and you were revering nature and connecting to the earth and in that experience you would oh look at this flower and you would you know uh, and again it depends on your relationship to who you would be sharing it with if you might smell that flower and have a whole interaction and then pluck it if this was somebody that you really really loved tremendously that you were like you know revering on a deep level you wouldn't even smell the flower because that would be uh, that would be in, in some way sort of taking away from that offering, but you would gently pluck it and at the end of this experience you'd have this bouquet of beautiful expression of the colors and fragrances of 
of the earth and nature and you'd have this whole thing that you this experience where you might have spent all afternoon collecting this and that's like a bouquet of roses and then you oh the door opens and your love your um, the person that you respect is there and you offer that as an expression of your love well you know from a spiritual perspective that's the greatest thing you could do is if you have attained a level of conscious realization you spread that you open your heart you create that channel where that energy can flow through you not in an egoistic sense but in a in a surrendered sense that your body has sort of become this vessel through which that energy can circulate and flow and people resonate with that and then they're like I want some of that or where does that come from mm. and you know that's how realization spreads and all those beings that have actually acquired a deeper state of conscious uh, realization become a, a flower that at the end is also again it's not for you it's an offering so I know that's uh, again I don't know if any of this makes sense and that's kind of a strange answer but so that to me that's the part that I'm personally into I mean, you know that's the part so for me it's less about <laughs> sponsorship questions and answers and sure but but I totally respect both sides of the coin you know they're working they're, they're, they work together uh, the older I get the more I appreciate the yin yin symbol. Yeah. It was there's my, so much yeah. wisdom in that. And then I, I love the fact that there's a little bit of white and the black, a yes. little bit of white and the black. You really perfectly run into each other. My, yeah, my exactly. very first uh, film production company was called Yin Yang Productions. Oh, no kidding. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, when I was in high school, in ninth grade, we had to do, um, you know, big, it was like a major, like 20 page research uh, project paper. And, um, and I did mine on acupuncture. And so I had to learn a lot about, uh, I mean, the, the philosophy of yin-yang mm. was definitely a part of that. Somehow you know, came into that. I think that's where it came from. But I also, like you, I've totally, one of the reasons I love the yin-yang so much is because it's actually, I love when a symbol, a visual symbol, you know, has perfectly, you know, it's like a perfect rendition of itself. Like a yin yang is one of the rare symbols where you don't need any teaching. You don't need any paragraph underneath it. If somebody looks at it, you can actually understand what it is and what it means and what it represents. Even, and if it's done, you know, drawn correctly, the, the black literally runs into and becomes the white, the white fades and becomes the black, and there's the perfect dots. And yeah, so it's really good. Um, when it comes to balance and harmony and um, understanding the value of duality, um, it's pretty, pretty awesome. Mm. So you touched upon it a little bit. You said you know, you feel that the community is thriving and is doing well. If you can articulate a little bit more about how do you know that? Right. And is it a feeling of it? Is it an observation of some sort? Um, I mean, like, what do you? Yeah. And it, and I know that I'm asking a question from a very masculine, very yang, you know, <laughs> like very like, tell me your proof, right? But I think for the people that are listening to this, um, they want to know how they can build or create or co-create or foster or cultivate a thriving community, right? And we all, let me correct that. A lot of us want that, right? So then, how how do you actually? I think know that the story part story? of it is uh, part of it is objective and or subjective and you know personal in mm -hmm. the sense that you know this is in particular a community that's been growing and cultivated for over just over twenty years now, and so I've uh, been able to observe you know mm -hmm. its ebbs and flows and when it was sort of 
you know, hurting and, you know, barely surviving or kind of taking a dip and going through some challenges and some changes and growing and evolving and, you know, and so there's the personal experience of like knowing, oh, this is, it's working, it's going well. I mean, I think a lot of that is when we're at, you know, Burning Man in particular uh, and it that week, but now we just did the first uh our mystic, uh, you know, Midburn or Mystic Festival uh, event on our own outside of Burning Man, and it was really I feel like the magic was there and it was special. And so that's really exciting that we're we want to cultivate this, but not just at Burning Man, but you know, all over the world and in many different ways. And that's kind of its evolution and what's happening now. Um, so outside of the personal, which and subjective feeling that I've got, which you know is neither here nor there to anybody else. I think the signs of something that's thriving is um, when you see the joy in people, mm-hmm. you know, so people's direct experience, you know, the difference, it would be like the difference between uh, lip service and authentic joy, you know, so lip mm-hmm. service is, you know, like, hey, I had a great experience, you know, or somebody who's going to write that or, you know, give you a compliment because they just want to make sure that they're going to be invited again or <laughs> they want to bring something, you know, there's, there's that versus... When you just see somebody who's you know radiating joy, who's mm-hmm. who's really, or you see somebody who you didn't know, or that at the beginning of the week looked like they might be a little intimidated or a little bit more quiet, and at the end of the time period, you know, you see them running around, and you know they're in a beautiful costume, or they're on stage, and you know in their element, or dancing, and you know, so it, it, these expressions of people and joy, in my opinion, is a really good uh, reference point. You know, if you're living in joy and expressing joy uh, and, and you're happy and, uh, you know, f- that's when I say thriving. I mean, no, it doesn't mean 100% of the time. We also have, you know, you know, there's all these things, where, whether it's uh, shamanic circles or we, we did a walk once as a, as a group to the temple where people could collectively mourn and release and kind of or go through some kind of catharsis of things that they needed to purge in their lives. So it's not to say that it's all, you know, bubbly laughter and fun, but the overall effect is, um, you know, people that seem like they're happy in their own skin, that they're, you know, they're not, you know, you, you used a term before uh, when you said actualization, and I feel like for me right now, like in this present moment, it's one of the most uh, important present, you know, uh, element, like things that I, I would love to just, you know, sort of share or talk about, which is, you know, the value of what is happening right now. So that to me is, is connected to this, is it, how do you know it's thriving? How do you know it's working? If something is working in the present tense, in the present, then it's working, you know, and, and, and I think that it's contrary to what so much of life is, I, at least it, the way I was brought up and the kind of perspective that I'm coming from. Everything we think or have been taught, like everything leads to everything else. And so everything you do is kind of leading to the next thing. And um, whenever there's that element of like, you know, I'm doing this so that I can do that. Again, in order to. I'm going here so that I can go, you know, I mean, this classic model is I'm going to work hard when I'm young and in school so that I can go to a good college. I'm going to work hard in college so that I can get a good job. I'm going to get a good job so that I can have money and provide for my family. 
I'm going to have money and provide for my family so that my kids can thrive and so that I can retire. And you know, and then I'm going to end up. I'm going to retire and I'll have money. So at that point, I can have a relaxing, fun experience before, for that last little phase in the sunset of my life before I transition. But you know, these are all like stepping stones, and it's sort of, uh, in my opinion, it's. Uh, it's not in real alignment with life. Like if life is always just happening and flowing and the more we sink into it, the more uh, you know, amazed we are, the more, uh, you know, the more we are just blown away and totally blissed out in the mystery of it all. Um, and so actualization, even on the spiritual path, like even on the spiritual path, it's amazing how many people are naturally caught up in the path itself. You know, the, uh, the, the classic, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. Or, you know... Uh, I don't you, understand. Oh, oh, you, oh, you never heard that one? No, what's uh, that? Basically, like, if you see the teacher on the road, d keep moving or, or kill them is, is this classic phrase. If you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. And now, where it's coming from is the attitude of... Um, not getting caught up in the teachings, not getting caught up in the journey. Uh, even if you're given uh, a tool, you want to use that tool. But again, there's this element of like, I'm doing this to get to here. And even if here is realization, even if here is enlightenment or liberation, which for people that are on the spiritual path, those are some common terms, you know, enlightenment, realization, moksha, liberation. Um, you, you need to have a perspective of actualization in the practice itself or else you're like everybody else. You're just doing something and you're focused on at the end of this process, at the end of this experience, I'm going to get here. As opposed to, I mean, you know, as opposed to another of my very favorite koans that make more sense uh, now than they ever did, which is the Zen koan, before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water after enlightenment chop wood carry water and that one you know is referring to that element of enlightenment while it is real and possible it it doesn't nothing changes you know the world doesn't change you know you're wherever you are whatever you're doing whatever your life entails prior to that realization revelation experience um, is going to be exactly the same. You know, if, you, if, if your daily responsibilities involve going out to the woods to chop wood and going to the river to get water so that you can bring it back to your house and survive for, for you have fire and you have water, it, being enlightened doesn't change that one iota. There's no aspect of your life that's going to be any different. And if you don't go get that water and go get that wood, you know, at least, you know, your body itself would perish, you know, so if you want to have sustenance of the body, you need to keep doing those things. The enlightenment it, that they're referring to is, is an inner uh, experience of perception, where the way you perceive the world, the way you perceive your own experience and everything is what shifts. And, you know, and so that's what they say about, you know, becoming free or becoming liberated from uh, things you know that's that's what it's kind of about thank you for that <laughs> my my own interpretation my own mental model about the word enlightenment is akin to the word awareness yeah so enlightened means just I'm more aware now I have options to choose between stimulus and response which one which response do I wanted to choose I can choose easily 
to um, dwell in my in my anger, in my upset, in my resentment, which just takes no effort to do that at all. Or I can choose to come from love, come from forgiveness, come from generosity. That's a, it takes probably a little bit more effort yeah. than the default. So I'm curious to know your thoughts. We're delving into now more of a spiritual conversation now. Um, so a lot of people would imagine that once they get enlightened, life would be blissful the entire time regardless of what's happening, what circumstances coming your way. How would you articulate that to them or based on your current understanding of spiritual journey, the, um, you know, the circumstances of life, etc.? cetera? Uh, yeah, and I think, I think it's important uh, at, before we even get into it to, to recognize that, you know, when you try and talk about a lot of these, you know, kind of spiritual, philosophical, uh, topics that definitions and you know uh, sort of are important because the word even enlightenment means one thing to one person and it means something else to somebody else so you might not even be talking about the same thing so I think it's great you know what you're saying and trying to be as articulate as possible is important you know uh, I think that some of the terminology that I think serves the term enlightenment because it's very vast and you know expansive and like to me all of these great uh, topics or elements of the spiritual journey and path are, are I love the mystery I love the they all lead to the space where words of any kind definitions of any kind uh, desecrate them you know so it's, it's, it's like Again, the, right, it's an abstraction the, of the, the, the Taoist perspective of you know those who know don't tell and those who tell don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the minute that you, if there's something that is nameless, formless, you know, changeless, you know, that, that you, the minute you start trying to label it, it you're you've already missed it. You know, but that being said. Uh, in the context of a podcast and the spiritual journey and the fact that we're you know all on it and you know the, the, you, you know it's, we can still lend to it we can still try and create little uh, stones along the uh, along the pond or along the river that you can hop across you know that's the, can be beneficial so enlightenment I think I, I love your definition of becoming more conscious and I think that um, along with becoming conscious a big part of enlightenment for for me it has to do with discernment uh, to me one who is more enlightened is one who can discern at a, at a greater capacity and ultimate discernment involves discerning between what we would classify as the real and the unreal things that are illusory and changing versus that which is um, you know authentic or unchanging and there's you know so so having that ability to discern is is you know where enlightenment comes in uh, another you know personal reflection of the enlightenment journey experience you know is it's one of those things that uh, like you'll hear about with spirituality in general where uh, you know there's so much you can do and then at a certain point it does have to do with like a fruit becoming ripe you know if you're at a tree in uh, your and it's a fruit tree um, you can't force a piece of fruit to be ripe you know it needs to ripen that's the process and I think that's a really important thing for people to grok 
because you know uh, the, the life itself is and the journey is happening for all of us and the desire for deeper awareness and for becoming more conscious and for the evolution of consciousness is a beautiful one and um, we never want to get to the point where we're forcing it you know because it's it would be like trying to force it or ripen making a piece of fruit ripen we also need to respect and revere a natural unfolding and process that's always happening and uh, so but you know I'm trying to think I always like to give people a visualization um, so imagine that you're a meditator um, a lot of people meditate and feel the benefits of meditation and meditation I think has a lot of uh, stock behind it where people would, would, would say it can lead to deeper states of awareness and deeper states of peace, peace of mind. And this last word that I would say, which is also connected to the term enlightenment, and that term is clarity. So if you're, if you're sitting in meditation um, and the, exp the experience of enlightenment I would say it would be like falling you know it would be like the actual process of sitting to meditate or doing a meditation whatever kind it is whether it's devotional chanting kirtan or a walking meditation or a sitting meditation of breath awareness uh, mindfulness there's so many different practices that is your that's the action that you're taking and there's a process to it but then the effects of that scientific technique of that tool of that technology uh, spirituality is a really big word and it's overused a lot now but to me what it translates to is it would be a technology spirituality is about spiritual technologies and there are all these different techniques and so you're using that technology and the effects of that process create more like what I would say would be like falling and by falling, I mean if you imagine falling through the sky, you know, your, your arms are flailing and, you know, you're just, there's nothing holding you anywhere. Um, and at a certain point, though, um, you surrender to the experience. So at a certain point, you're like, oh, you know, cause you're probably flailing because you're going through a little fear or you're entering an unknown space. And it might be pleasant, it might be unpleasant. But when you realize that you, it doesn't seem like you're going to crash, like the fear is usually based on hitting the ground or, mm -hmm. you know, like I'm going to hit something. I'm going to, when you're like, wait, this, then the falling can become really beautiful and fun because mm. you're like, oh, I'm free. Mm. I'm having this experience of, you know, I'm just, I'm just here and I'm floating and it's, but I'm free. I'm no longer caught in that fear. And, and then um, you, it's like as if our, your whole life, you thought you were seeing everything clearly but then because everything was blurry so you've been look you've been living your entire life and things are blurry but they don't appear blurry to you because that's all you've ever seen and think if everything was blurry and you went about your whole life and everybody else sort of seemed to be existing and operating in this same paradigm of blurriness and then suddenly, like, it's as if in the third eye, the pineal and pituitary gland, you know, there's a rack focus and, and you can feel it in your spine. And suddenly through that point of awareness or perception, 
your focus is, is you know, it's, it's like that, a, a lens would be the only way I could describe it, that it racks and you see everything from this new perspective of clarity. And again, the, the power of that is, is really difficult to describe because of you thought everything was clear. I thought everything was clear. I thought I was seeing things the way they kind of are. But now I have this amazing deeper sense of clarity. And, and in that clarity, all these things that no, didn't make sense before, they make sense. And it creates this deep sense of ease. And to me, that, uh, that lends to what we, the other thing you were talking about when you said bliss. You know, bliss in yoga is a very particular uh, state of awareness or state of consciousness. It's usually referred to as samadhi. Mm. And, but there's samadhi states. And then there's you know, states that are not samadhi, but you're equally as aware. So that's just more what state of consciousness are you in. If you have that awareness and clarity and discernment within you, you can be living from in that place of what people refer to as enlightenment and not be like you know, a bliss bunny. You know, I mean, so, so there's... What's a bliss bunny? I mean, you know, a bliss bunny would be somebody that has cultivated, you know, awareness to the point where they, they're just, you know, they have this, uh, nothing, nothing is affecting them in a way that they're just, you know, they're very joyous, like they're blissed out. So if you have that, there is an aspect of this, and it usually happens for most people at, at the beginning, and it can stay for a, a, a while, and... Uh, it, this blissed out state where, I mean, there's all these uh, examples where like, you know, there's a yogi meditating on, on next to a river and he, he didn't know that it was the river of the emperor. He was actually in the, you know, lands or the area that was like the emperor's castle and the guards come up and they're, you know, hey, you have to move. You're not allowed to be here. The yogi doesn't respond. He's in this blissed out state of awareness. And they're saying it gets to the point almost like where they're, if in our modern day, it would be like with a police officer with a gun, like, put your hands up or I will shoot, you know. So they raise the sword and they're like, if you don't move, we're going to, you know, we're going to use this sword. Yogi doesn't move at all. And they take the sword and they chop the guy's arm off, like the meditator, the meditator, the yogi's arm off. Blood is pouring out like profusely spurting um, out of the yogi's arm or where, where his arm was and yet his he's still sitting in complete meditation he's there's no effect at all his other hand is staying there he doesn't scream he doesn't react so at that point they realize that this is obviously you know this is somebody who's a, like a master of some kind and they you know i mean there's different versions of the story there's one story version where they just you know they give him his arm back and he puts it on and it like merges completely so that's a little bit more like i guess you could say the miraculous and there's more pragmatic versions where you know they tend to his arm but it's more about the recognition that the yogi is then invited to the castle and the king you know, bows in reverence and says, you know, whatever you've got going on, will you teach me? Will you help me? And uh, he, he ends up uh, helping the king in that way, in that capacity. But the main point is this level of awareness, this level of bliss that, um, and I think it's more significant in our modern day. It's not about having your arm chopped off and not being affected. It's about somebody coming in and saying, hey, you're a fraud, or you're only doing this for the money, or whatever it is or you know trying to break that person's 
uh, bliss or, you know, whatever, or, or just life itself, you know, like there's a car accident or this person finds out that they have a disease or their physical body is not in alignment or whatever, it can be anything, but normally, or, or just any stresses of life. When, when you're in that state of awareness, uh, you know, it's almost like a Teflon coat where uh, or Gore-Tex jacket with rain you know if you don't have that Gore-Tex on the rain is gonna soak your clothing and you're gonna then be your you know you can sort of be in that place where you're like I love the rain and then after a while you're like I'm really wet and I'm wearing a cotton shirt and it's become soggy and your body starts to get you know wrinkled and you're then you start to shiver and you got hypothermia and there's a person you know and that even though they're quote-unquote spiritual they're freezing and they're actually not doing well and at a certain point they're like I gotta get inside and they might even come inside and be like oh man the weather sucks you know I hate that I was just trying to meditate and it just was pouring enlightenment you know at a, at a degree or a level would be a Gore-Tex jacket but it, there's nothing physical but you have that Gore-Tex so the rain is still hitting you that's the part about afterwards it's not like there's no rain chop wood carry water rain is still gonna fall but instead of you getting soaked it just beads up and rolls off of you and interesting that, and, and so yeah you kind of go about life without anything affecting you in a way that would be detrimental to you living and uh, being on your mission. Now, I would comment that there are these states of consciousness, if you want to get into the depths of yoga, there is a state, you know, Nirvikalpa Samadhi, which is a blissful state, but it's a conscious state too. So it's like your inner experience is one of complete bliss, no matter what, but you're out in the world. You could be driving, you could be giving a lecture, you could be wherever you are, but, but and nobody would ever necessarily know it, but you do have this deep-seated bliss uh, experience happening all the time. Mm. And, and I think there are a lot of great masters and yogis that are playing that game right now. Mm. Um, on the outer, in the outer sense, um, you might not ever recognize it though or know it. And then there's also the other side of it where they might not be in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, but they're still enlightened. You know, so they do have that deep-seated awareness, um, but they're just in and of the world and they've got a mission in the world. Mm. So, you know, I mean, that's like, you know, that would be an example where somebody might say, oh, you're supposed to be this great master, right. but I saw you get upset. I right. saw inside your boardroom when the doors were all closed, I saw you almost like yelling at your staff, right. at your group, the people that run your ashram or your organization. Right. And if you were this great yogi, then that wouldn't happen. But I mean, at that level, it gets so kind of complicated and it really has more to do with, do you have eyes of seeing? Because it could be that there's truth to that. It could be that this person is, um, you know, out there in the world and they're, um, they're amazing and doing great things, but that their level of awareness is here, but it's not way up here. And so they, they do have, you know, there are all these different levels of awareness. Or it could be that it appears, that appears to be quote unquote bad, but there's nothing bad about it because it's just effective leadership. Mm -hmm. I mean, any great leader, uh, I think you would recognize because of all your experience in the companies that you've built, would say there's a time for yelling. There's mm -hmm. a time for mm -hmm. being a hard, you know, uh, not uh, tenderness, not uh, right. a soft love. Right, right. That that I needed this staff to be effective. We're we're trying to up uh, up level or scale up, and we've right. only got twelve months to do it. Right. And there and I need to really let these people know and get get into them. Right. So that's not like you know again that doesn't mean somebody's not 
uh, doesn't isn't a yogi or doesn't have a high level of awareness. It's just that in that moment, that's how they're uh, teaching or that's how they're trying to be effective. You know, it's interesting you say that one of the highest performing uh, leaders that I know, and he also happens to be uh, one of the wisest people that I know, and I know thousands and thousands of people, and he's only 27. Mm-hmm. And then from our conversations that he shared with me, he, according to him, this is his point of view, that he is very much aware of everything that he does. Everything that he does comes from a place of effectiveness, the outcome that he's going for. And to your point, yelling is a tool. Mm-hmm. That he's very much aware of what he's doing, and not necessarily that he was upset, that he was just using this tool as a way to to be effective as, a, as an effective leader. Yeah, I mean, in my personal life, I think that, um, you know, I would say that I, I, I struggled a lot. I, I would even maybe say I struggled tremendously over a 20-year period in, in my entertainment career as a, as a film and television entertainment, you know, writer, producer, director, actor, you know, I was sort of a multi-hyphen trying to make my way in that career. And I think that I definitely would would have been served better if I understood that lesson because part of my personality was always wanting to be liked. Mm. I, I wanted to be liked. I want, and I also wanted to be, um, like I, I, I guess you could almost say more zen. I wanted to be friendly and happy and kind and loving and nice and generous and all these things at the cost of being effective. Mm-hmm. You know, at the cost of not recognizing that, you know, there's certain people, certain situations, certain outcomes that if you understand that, then it, it, there's not one strategy. It's not one level way. Um, I mean, and, and again, it just depends on who you are and what your mission is, what your dharma is, what your path is. Somebody like Mahatma Gandhi, part of his, his, his life, I mean, he said, my life is my uh, lesson or my teaching. My life, my life itself is my teaching. Mm. And so for him, not raising his voice, uh, being disciplined, uh, e- exhibiting nonviolence, you know, um, all of that was, was, was his teaching. So for him, it, it really did, it was like that. It was about not losing your temper, going through an inner experience to be able to exhibit this way of being so that everybody else could model after it. But he's a pretty unique individual. So for a lot of other people... Right, not everyone. Yeah. Billions of people, one Gandhi. Yes, exactly. <laughs> for, you know, for a lot of us, I think it's important to, you know, to just recognize what am I trying to accomplish here? Mm. What's the best way? What's the means at which um, I can accomplish it successfully? You know, um, And then that being said... Uh, there's just a larger thing that I feel like is you, going back to another thing you were talking about about a thriving community and and what makes ours work and I feel like again I, I don't want to try and keep coming back to Burning Man but I feel like it's a it's a symbiotic thing between mystic and Burning Man itself which is and I think it would be great if it was adopted in the world at large which is do your thing uh, live your life be radically self-expressed you know basically do whatever you want that makes you happy that makes you feel good that that can you know it, it, it is uh effective for you but there's one line in the sand which is as long as it's not at the detriment of others mm-hmm. as long as it's not hurting other people's experience mm-hmm. so if you want to uh, walk along the road and whistle by all means do that um but if if you're in a small little specific space that says meditation happening inside this space 
and please you know honor silence that would not be a place where it would be like hey I just want to be free and whistle you know like there's a, a sort of that agreement that in that space they're trying to honor silence or you know and again like or in a larger sense you can do whatever you want in life uh, we have all this amazing free choice which is part of what is probably the greatest and most uh, specific aspect that makes uh, humanity and human life different than all these other forms of life is that we have free choice. That's the greatest gift and blessing that we've been given. You know, we even in terms of uh, spirituality. You know, uh, we're born, and you can either recognize the miracle, um, and you can love the divine, or you can ignore the divine. You know, that's your choice. And uh, I feel like that's kind of the journey that we're all on is you, you, you I think if you've been at it long enough, you recognize um, when you honor the mysterious and the miraculous and uh, in, in life itself and you're just, you have these experiences where you're, you're just amazed um, at life, then it, it sort of cultivates you um, like I, but going full circle to what we talked at the beginning, the reaction to that, you know, what is the response to that? I feel like the inherent response to that experience is wanting to serve. You know, it's just one it, service. You know, I, or this reminds me of something else I was thinking about recently, which is that expression: "It's far get better to give than to receive." Mm. And I was thinking how, like, that's only partially is true. It, is it better? Well, it, it, this is a great thing to chat about because what I got recently was that it. It, it depends. It's that's the answer. Is it depends? It, that statement is coming from a place of um, understanding, giving, and receiving. So, uh, if if like if you're somebody who's in a place where you you know really would benefit from receiving, you know, and you're where you would love to receive, then receiving is definitely better than giving. But this the the, the moniker the cliche it's far better to give than to receive is coming from a place of like if your life is full if you have this experience of life where you feel full full of energy full of love full of enthusiasm full of passion um, just full then and you're, you're sort of your life is overflowing and then you're in a place where the only thing that inherently makes sense is to give if you if you were a cup and your cup was running over, then what would you want to do? Would you want that water or whatever it is, that elixir, to just be randomly spilling out and going nowhere? Or or if that if you are in the experience of being the cup, you would want to be like, hey, I'm overflowing. So take some of this elixir and you would want to give that elixir to everybody else. That's the natural outcome of that experience. And so from that experience, it's far better to give. And to receive it because you're there's you don't need to receive anymore if you're already full um, but if you're not full then and you're and your experience then it is better to receive than to give <laughs> so that would be my take on it what are some of your personal practices as a way to straddle you know live this spiritual life in a in this physical realm I have a particular uh, Kriya that I practice every day um, I think that that would be, um, that would be, I'm a, you know, I'm a yogi, I'm a Kriya yogi, and, um, 
you know, I would say it's less important for me to share what my kriya is or what my practice is because in yoga there's a certain, uh, you receive initiations, you go through a process to receive technologies, practices, and, and part of it is, is sort of honoring it and not, uh, the dissemination of that technology is actually really important. I mean, I, I, would, I would honestly put it at the level of like uh, a nuclear bomb. Wow. I mean, well, yeah, in a real sense. If I was talking in a room with scientists and this very thing came up with like Einstein and Oppenheimer and all those great scientists at the time when they were working on nuclear fission and fusion, um, you know, the significance of building the bomb and what it represented and what it could do. And there were scientists that were, you know, saying we need this and, you know, where we're at in the world, it's very important and, we, we, you know, we have to cultivate this. And there were other scientists that were saying... We're not like kind of again going full circle to the beginning of our talk when I was talking about what stage of evolution and consciousness is our culture, our society, are we as humanity? And there were scientists, and I think Einstein included, that were saying, uh, sadly, we're not mature enough. We're not ready to harness that kind of energy because while we're intelligent enough and capable enough of, of accomplishing it, um, our humanity, our, our spirituality, our compassion, our awareness is not uh, evolved enough to handle it responsibly. And so they were like, I, I, and so I'm not going to lend my talents to that project because, you know, because I don't feel like it, it, it could, and, and if it was used destructively, it, it, you know, it could have the equal power and effect, but not in the capacity that we want. So to me, that's what spiritual technologies are. If they're authentic, and, you know, again, it, it doesn't matter whether you're a Buddha or a Buddhist or a yogi or, uh, you know, Shaolin master or, you know, a Sufi. There's all these different, I love that all the religions and all the different spiritual paths, like they are all spokes on a wheel. They all lead to the same place. So, um, and they all have this element of themselves that is mystical, that is mysticism, which is really, to me, mysticism is more technology based. It's... I mean, I, somebody might be surprised to hear that because they were like, oh, I thought it was, you don't understand it, but they're technologies that are effective. It doesn't mean you understand how they work or understand everything, but they're, they work, you know, they're effective. And so... Right, what, even, even today, we still don't quite understand how the electricity works. Yeah. But yet, you know, we flip on a switch... It's, that's what matters. The light goes we on. Want, we want or, the light. Right, we know? want the light. We don't really and care about the physics. We do know how to create a light bulb and how to wire things and when the light goes on we're kind of like great you know people great. people i haven't seen any issue in the last uh, 100 plus years or uh since uh we've been enjoying electricity that people are like i refuse to use the light until i fully understand it you know so that's actually a great thing that you mentioned because i feel like that to me is what yoga is all about it's not uh philosophy based um, it's it's effectiveness based. You know, if it works for you, if you you have a direct experience and that is a healthy experience and a beneficial experience, then keep doing it. Um, if it doesn't and it's not having any effect, then why would you do it? And, and when you speak of yoga, do you speak of just the asanas, or do you actually speak oh, no. of philosophy? Yeah, of yoga? no, I'm talking about like yoga in its uh, classical yoga, classical Indian yoga. Yoga refers to yoga, which is union. Um, between uh, individual consciousness and universal consciousness, uh, merging of 
you know what we call kind of mind body spirit you know that experience and anything that does that and everything is yoga so in, even even within um even within the kind of term yoga there's raja yoga which are the eight limbs of yoga and uh the asanas are uh one practice or hatha yoga is really where asanas come from hatha mean you know it's the sun and the moon and uh, the elements of our physical bodies and how they relate to the sun and the moon and these particular postures were originally cultivated so that people could meditate deeply and go into these other limbs or other aspects of yoga. It's just, it's kind of humorous that the asanas are the thing that, you know, have been really most effective, like especially in the Western world and a lot of the world outside of India is that people just think of yoga as asanas because, you know, they see a yoga studio and they know about doing the asanas. And, it, and the asanas are a really wonderful, powerful practice. But I think that it would be like, um, again, it's the thing I said before, it would be like a magic trick without the mystery. Like, you know, for yoga to uh, be empowered to be really what it, as powerful as it can be, it, you really benefit from knowing the whole enchilada even if you're doing a simple asana understanding that it's not an exercise it's a spiritual process that's the one thing that i would say if nothing else don't go to another yoga class don't ever do any form of yoga whether it's pranayama breathing meditation asana physical practice at the, at the very very least just have enough reverence for that technology that you understand that it is a spiritual process and when you engage in that spiritual process, be open to what happens. And mm. I think, you know, to just see it as a phys if you want physical exercise, go to the gym, get on a Stairmaster, get on a treadmill, play tennis, go surfing. There's, or, you know, actually, surfing is spiritual. <laughs> I mean, they're all spiritual, but um, if you want exercise, you can do a lot, a lot of things you can do for physical great exercise. Um, uh, so, for more effectiveness. For more effective, right, yeah, right. it depends on what, what, what outcome you want. Right. Uh, so when you first asked me, though, like, you know, I have a practice that I do every day. And I think for the sake of the podcast, what I would want to share is it, it, it's less about that particular practice or Kriya because that's mine. And every, we're 7 billion of us. There are going to be 7 billion different varieties of practices. And they're going to be... 7 billion unique practices that are perfect for each individual. So my practice wouldn't be ideal for everybody else because they're them and they've got... But there is tremendous power and potential in having a practice. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say is, um, you know, in yoga it's called sadhana and a translation of the term sadhana would be a tool. You know, so sadhana is a tool that you use to you know reach the destination to to get where you're going it's a technology that's used to you know create the yoga to create that uh, experience of oneness and connection uh, to the divine and um, yeah and so uh, there's also it's also translates or another big part of a sadhana though is it, it means discipline and in yoga, like with yogis, we often joke about it and say, it's my spiritual discipline instead mm. of discipline. Because it's like you always want to remind yourself that you want that experience to be blissful. Even if it's a discipline, the discipline is about doing it every day. Mm. Um, for me, I can share a story. In 1997, um, I was uh, taking, I was studying with uh, Guru Mare Singh. 
and uh, he's a direct disciple of Yogi Bhajan, the Siri Singh Sab, who brought Kundalini Yoga to the West. And we were in this, you know, Kundalini Yoga teaching. And at the end of the class, he basically said, um, "We're going to do this. We're going to do a, a kriya." And and then we did we did the kriya, and he said, "Great, you know." So um, in in Kundalini Yoga, there you can do an eleven day practice, which is really great. Uh, it, an eleven day practice means you do it for eleven consecutive days without ever missing a day. Um, you you do it very devotionally, and you're fully committed to it, and you explore and experience what are the benefits what are the effects of doing this for 11 days something magical something mystical some there's usually some form of noticeable discernible uh, transformation that occurs in 11 days so we we can spend all time all the time going into why is 11 days but there's something special that happens when you reach that 11 day mark and then when you succeed in that, what often happens is you go back to class and you ask your teacher and you say, I, I did it, I did 11 days, like what's next? What's my, I wanna, I wanna go further, you know? Um, I want the next thing. And so then there's a 30 day practice. And that's, you know, it's, it's doing anything that, that's conscious for 30 days, you know, even just brushing your teeth or you name it. Like if it's not, you know, doing something consciously specifically for 30 days without ever missing a day is not easy, especially if you have to dedicate time and energy to it and it's a yoga practice. And, um, and like I said, in these kind of um, disciplines, if you miss a day, you know, you can't skip it. You can do 29 days. If you miss that next day, you start all over again as part of the journey. But, um, and then there's, so there's the 30 days. Now the reason that's significant is um, 30 days, one of the things that I can share is that it's um, the length of time necessary to begin to break habits. So if you have a habit that you're not, that you feel is no longer serving you in life, um, and, you, and you have a particular practice or kriya to break that habit, which, they, which exists in yoga, then you, you know, when you hit that 30 day mark, they say like that, that pattern is now broken you know so you can, you're you're kind of freed you're no longer uh restricted by it and you can begin to really free yourself from it and then so then people say i did 30 days at first i did 11 now it's a year later i did my first 30 day sadhana and um and then in, in kundalini yoga in particular then there is a next step and the next step is 90 days it's three months to do a practice uh every single day with you know like i said with devotion and uh this deep commitment and the reason 90 days, there's, there's so much tied to all of these, but I'm just sharing like one benefit so that you know. So the, this one benefit about 90-day practice or sadhana is, again, if it's a particular kriya that you're learning, there's a particular kriya that allows you to create a new pattern or what we call in our society habit. So if, and a habit can be really powerful, like a habit could be positive thinking. Um, so the breaking of a habit could be, I no longer want to smoke cigarettes, or I no longer want to, you know, uh, berate myself in my own mind, you know. Well, and then there's, there's the creation of a new habit. I'm going to be kind to myself. I'm going to look at myself in the mirror and see my own beauty. These are, you know, and to create that pattern, you know, can totally transform your life, you know, if, if you actually create it as a new habit. Because how often do we look in the mirror? We look in the mirror a lot. Uh, and if, if you're subconsciously looking in the mirror 
and thinking negatively towards yourself, not being loving, not being kind. These are all silent things, but that you're reaffirming every day. So that's like, I, I always say people think of habits like as these big, big things. If, if it was just this little thing that your intention was, anytime my eyes look into my own eyes and I see this uh, temple, this body in my reflection, I will be loving and compassionate and kind. To build that habit, you know, is a, is a life changer. And that then you can accomplish that with a particular kriya in 90 days. So it's like you know, to me that's that was learning these things was incentive. I'm like, yeah, I'm on. Sign me up. Even if I'm traveling, even if I'm flying and going across borders. I mean, I've done my sadhana, you know, anywhere, everywhere and anywhere. Airport. I mean, airplane bathrooms when they're knocking on the door. You know, what's going on in there? You know, because I'm like, I'm crossing international time frames and I'm realizing I have to do my sadhana right now. Because otherwise it'll be tomorrow, you know. And I, I'm doing. I said I would do it every day, um, and so then wrapping this whole story up, the next phase. If you've accomplished a 90-day sadhana and you have a specific teacher and you're on this journey, you know what's next? What's after 90 days? Well, there's a huge leap. There's no, you know, oh, then you do it for four months or six months. The next leap is a thousand-day sadhana. So that's a challenge. And a thousand-day sadhana is the purpose of a thousand-day sadhana is to master something. So if you want to become a master of a particular kriya, of a particular practice or technology, then you need to do it for a thousand days. And um, you know, I, I, I hesitate to share any more because I want everybody to do it for themselves. But what, what I can say, because you know you asked about my personal experience when I was doing my thousand day practice and saw you did it yeah so so he taught so in this class he we did this Kriya and it was wonderful and powerful and profound and transformative and he said uh, he told us all of the sort of effects and you know that this practice had and he said just so you know uh, you just did day one for anybody who's up for it if you did a thousand day sadhana, your thousandth day of this kriya would be December 31st, 1999. So you'd be starting the new millennium of mastering this. And uh, that was my, for me personally, that was my, my first thousand day sadhana. And, uh, but, but what happens is the, there's something that they don't tell you, or at least I wasn't told about the thousand day sadhana and really what the thousand day sadhana is all about is just teaching you the value of sadhana itself the actual just of the tool of having a tool or a technology and i forget where but somewhere in say the 700s you know when you're when i'm more than two years or around two years into a practice every day Uh, and and just as a side note my wife is always joking because she says her sadhana is having to watch me do my sadhana every day. <laughs> uh, so she says, that's my sadhana, is having to put up with you and have to observe you having to do this spiritual thing every day without ever missing a day. But somewhere in the 700s, I had this huge awakening. And the awakening was like, it was, I was just laughing and laughing. I couldn't stop laughing that day because I said, oh, now I understand the purpose of a thousand-day sadhana and the purpose is that if it's working, if it's effective, you, act, you see how your life is totally different because of it. And in, in that experience, you realize, why would I ever stop? 
that this practice itself has transcended time and daily activity and that you get to this stage where you're like, this is a blessing, this is such a gift and it gives me this this blessing and this experience every day. So why would I, you don't get to a thousand days and stop and like, oh, done, been there, done that. No, it's the opposite. It's that you've committed to the practice so deeply that now you're living the life of a yogi, that now you're living the life where practice is a part of your life. and. Even in enlightenment, and even in the experience of that discernment and awareness and clarity, you still continue it often because even if you don't need it, you would want to do it just to be a model for others. Mm. Just so others can see he, he or she is in that state of awareness and still practices and still uh, you know, is, is doing that. So, so that's what I would say. As, you know, somebody said, what's my practice? I would say I have, I have a sadhana. And I have a lot of practices uh, that are wonderful, and um, and I do them daily, you know. And 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 the other thing is this element of self-actualization. So here we are talking on this podcast, which is really exciting. I get to look into CK's eyes and learn so much more about him. I get to actually say a lot of things that make sense to me. And then when he talks back to me, I'm like, wow, they're actually on some level making sense to him in his responses and he's sharing his stories and his experience and that self-actualization is a big part of my current life in the sense that there's no objective for me i'm not creating an objective for this particular experience like well i'm going to do the podcast because maybe if i do the podcast you know there's there's no after this there's just this podcast right now if anything I go the opposite direction and I say imagine that this is the last podcast and the only podcast I ever get to do so I'm going to enjoy it to its fullest I'm going to recognize its its power and I'm going to try as much as I can to share as much as I can in it because this is it this is all there is and mm. you know maybe there'll be another one maybe there won't but if there's not I've done what I could to express myself thanks for sharing your story um, why don't we bring back to Burning Man one okay. last question uh, and, I, and I got this question from June Yu one of the guests from the podcast he said share with us Burning Man from your eyes from your from your landscape. I mean, oh gosh. You what know. about it? It's so uh, captivating that you will continue to go back even after twenty one years. Yeah, we've touched. We've actually really touched on a lot of it. Um, I mean, in little pieces and parts. I mean, I would put. I really, honestly, would classify it in that category of the more I say, the, the more I'm devaluing it because <laughs> because it's because it's magical, because it's mysterious, because it's. There's so much to it that I can't really describe, but I can I can try and, like I said once again, I can try and throw some pebbles along the stream so that people can hop along them and hopefully end up there or experience it for themselves. For me, I mean, through my eyes, it's it's life itself, but it's it's a it's a clarification of life, and it's the kind of the way that I love to live. Mm. I feel like inevitably, there's there's uh, elements to life or conventions I guess you could say that there's conventions that we honor that we sort of operate with in our in, in society and culture and unfortunately 
in in a certain sense they're compromising you know that we compromise one another in these agreements you know i'm going to look a certain way i'm going to act act a certain way i'm going to behave a certain way because that's the context of how we operate in our culture in our society and the question is are those agreements and are those behaviors and choices serving our highest good are they serving us uh living in the best healthiest most harmonious most invigorating most inspiring ways and what i've found is what we like to call in my camp the the grand playa which is the world at large you know society culture um as opposed to the playa being burning man um a lot of burning man calls the grand playa they call it the default world but i don't like that definition because default world makes it seem like this subsect like like a a lesser than you know is uh, a separation there's separation yeah. and it's like oh now i've got to go back to the default world where you know i don't get to be like this and where everything's different and while there's a certain truth that and recognition to what they're referring to we're trying to model the grand playa by saying hey what it's about is not just doing this here for a week but really bringing this back as much as we can and influencing and inspiring and transforming our culture and societies so that all that great juicy magic um that happens at Burning Man is happening all the time and i really believe that that was the mission of Larry Harvey you know especially towards the end you know when he realized that burning man itself was thriving and there were that these regional burns and burns happening around the world and that people were realizing it's not just an event and it's not just a festival it's a way of life it's a way of looking at life it's a way of living um and so we're trying to kind of keep that going that being said the burning man festival if you're asking me about like that thing that happens once a year in the black rock desert of nevada um you know and 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 I'm sure in in smaller incarnations around the globe um to me it's like the greatest party possible like <laughs> the like the greatest party you could imagine uh, happening for for a week and so you know if somebody gave you an invite and was like this literally is the world's greatest party would you want to go or would you not want to go and it's and because it's temporal there's a certain magic to burning man because that particular version of it or what happens in that it 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 it's temporal it's like this is happening it's only for this period of time all these people coming together the city itself is is only temporarily built it's a desert and then it turns into black rock city and then at the end it is back to the desert so that whole thing is a reflection and honoring of like i feel like society and culture like we like to think that it'll be around forever but it isn't like all the buildings you know a lot of great masters and yogis are always saying you know the world is just fine you know earth it's going to be just fine it's not about you know it's how we treat it and our relationship with it and how we prosper or how we thrive like our our descendants and our ancestors and the connection of that and trying to think generations ahead like for humanity yeah that is something to be deeply concerned about but the earth as its own thing you know is going to thrive pro- probably much better without humans at least the way we're currently operating and so you know cities pop up 
if you if you're a fan or a student of world history, you see these undulations of cultures and societies and what they were doing. And you know they come, they go, they disappear. There's the ancient history of the Earth that has barely been explored. Um, you know, and other civilizations in the cosmos, which has barely been explored. There's all these elements of life that we haven't currently acknowledged because we still seem to be obsessed with thinking we're the smartest, most intelligent, you know, and, and needing to have certain paradigms of ours, like this has to be this, you know. I think we would evolve so much faster and more beautifully if we could just start from a place of we don't know everything. We know a lot and we know certain things, which is amazing and it's helping us, but we don't know everything. And if everybody just said, oh, well, yeah, we don't know everything, let's explore, the evolution of humanity would go a lot faster and it'd be really exciting. I mean, it is happening. It's just, you know, it's happening in, in due time, in perfect time. Um, but the specifics of Burning Man, like what is it? Like when you talk about the magic, I think it is, it's a city that's built uh, in a community that's, that's built by art by participants who are artists and creators and uh, thought leaders and healers and musicians and uh, just and everything else you can imagine you know all different walks of life um, but I feel like the, the themes that bring everybody together are you know um, collaboration participation the, the principles radical free expression leave no trace which means you know we leave the places we are cleaner more beautiful than when we found them um you know uh, get a gifting culture you know that's something for everybody there's so much for people to learn about because most of us don't get to experience a gifting culture to me that's a gift that i get to go somewhere once a year where it really is a gifting culture where we we've figured out a way even if it's only temporary where you put your wallet away you don't need money you don't have money that's not about money and yet you get to thrive if i actually want to foot massage or a back rub or I want to go to a yoga class or I want to go to a lecture or I want to get a tour of the world's greatest art museum or I want to ride my bike or borrow a bike or get a ride in a huge art vehicle like whatever we do we do all these amazing things and there's no monetary value because everybody is gifting what they have and it's a good example like if you need anything it's like the the universe provides. And I really have experienced that deeply over 20 years. If I need a water, a water appears. If I need shelter, even if I'm in the middle of the desert, somehow I get shelter, whether it's a vehicle that ends up randomly pulling up or I'm, I'm in a dust storm and there's nothing for a mile and yet suddenly through the dust I see a small little wooden pyramid with a sign that says, you know, come inside. And inside is nothing but a sign that says, you know, you are now here. <laughs> so it might not be, there's nothing to it except in that moment, it gives me shelter. So, you know, the, uh, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite art installations, which was at Burning Man a few years ago, was like way out on the deep playa, which is basically like open desert. You know, I was, I was walking and I just saw like a pole in the ground and I knew it wasn't natural because it's desert, you know, so I could, and I could just barely see it. It was way out and I was like, what is that pole? What is that? You know, and I go and I go and I get closer and, and, and I finally, and it drew me to it, you know, because I, 
problem. I was, I was moving further and further from the temple, from the man, from the city. I was basically going towards the fence or the edge of Burning Man. You know, and wherever you go, you got to turn back and go all the way. But this pole was drawing me to it. Like I was like, is it an art project? Is it a piece of construction that just somebody was doing something and left it? And um, I finally get up to the pole. And the closer I get, I realize it's got almost like a city. Like I was in a city, it's got one of those flyers on it with little, where the bottom is, is things that have been um, cut, you know? So like, you know, if you see, and you're in the city and somebody says babysitting or gardening or, you know, and you can, here's their number, you can peel that off at the bottom. Hmm. So I saw that the pole is just a pole, but it's got one of those stuck to it. And again, I'm thinking, is that part of that, what that pole is? Did somebody just come by and stick that on? And when I finally get up to the flyer, it's um, it's a picture of Lionel Richie. And at the top of it, it says, hello, in big letters. And uh, all the little pieces of paper at the bottom uh, that are cut where the phone number should go, they all say, is it me you're looking for? <laughs> and it's it, like, it was just so random and yet so hilarious. And I was laughing so much and there was nobody out there but me to appreciate this. And I'm thinking this artist, like, yes, you got me, it worked. Like this drew me in all the way out here. And it, it you know, I don't know, there's just something totally, I feel like Burning Man is a celebration of uh, novelty and to me that was there was such novelty in that you know and so uh, and that's just like one tiny tiny little reference if you talk to anybody who goes to Burning Man they're gonna have a thousand of these stories because you enter this space where life becomes a huge adventure you're reminded mm. like oh this is an adventure I'm on and it's fun mm. and whatever mm. I'm and and yet the community is, is so loving that I'm that I've found there is so loving and supportive if I'm going through a tough time, somebody's like, okay, do you, is it okay with you? Can I give you a hug? And I'm like, I, and then you're getting a like, real hug from somebody that you don't know. And it's not just a hug like, oh, pat you on the back, you know, uh, have a nice day. It's like somebody who's like, you know, you're sitting there and you're almost in that uncomfortable moment where you're like, I don't know you, so thanks for the hug, but I should stop. They don't stop. And they this happened to me last year. And Mm. I was suddenly uncomfortable myself because, and I'm I'm a pretty open person, and I love hugs. But it was the depth of the hug. I felt like suddenly it transcended a hug, and I felt like it was somebody that I knew really deeply, or somebody in my family, or like like it was that kind of hug. And um, it just almost brought me to tears because I just I, I really felt the the purpose of a hug, which is somebody embracing you, somebody letting you know and reassuring you whatever you're going through. I love you. I care about you. I value you. And whatever uh, love I have inside me, I'm totally going to give it to you. And that's the way I'm going to support you right now. And so it's a very emotional thing to have that experience with somebody that you don't know. Mm randomly you know it's it's it can be transformative and then we separate and i find out the person says his name was something like you know or his playa name was like you know i'm the ultimate hugger you know and i was and and so again i was sort of like oh how bizarre that i was actually in a sensitive place going through something and i really needed a hug right there and that's the person that came up to me it wasn't just a random thing it was, that was that person's art that was their contribution to Burning Man, was that they hug people and mm. teach people, it's okay, this is what a real hug is, and it's okay to do that. Now, I recognize, my, my kids make fun of me, I'm, probably, I'm a hippie, you know, I love to hug trees, and uh, you know, I'm a peace, love, whatever kind of guy, so my particular examples are gonna be 
you know, given my narrative is going to be articulated or painted with my perspective. But Burning Man is filled with anarchy. You know, it's filled with the opposite side too. Part of the reason I've I've loved going back every year is that I learned to appreciate and value people that have completely opposite perspectives than mm-hmm. me, and mm-hmm. how to love them mm-hmm. and understand them better mm-hmm. by not uh, extra uh, uh, like exercising them or by not alienating them, mm-hmm. but by seeing by being in a context in a community that welcomes you know diverse points of views and and mm-hmm. appreciating all of that. So. I would just, you know, when I say it's the biggest party on the planet, I, I'm not talking about drugs. I'm not talking about alcohol. I'm not talking about dancing per se or all of the things that we might associate with partying. Although, sure, that's definitely happening. I'm talking about the larger version or expression of party, which is celebration. Mm. Like, if we could go about life and enjoy it as a celebration, the ups, the downs, the good, the bad, you know, uh, the creativity, the novelty, the spirituality, the community, it's all like, it's like a popcorn machine and the popcorn the week of Burning Man is just popping. So mm-hmm. we're, we're all kernels uh, and, you know, when you're in the right environment, which, and all the, the kernels are popping, you're going to pop. And I would even go so far as to say that even if you're that random one of like, you know, 3,000 kernels, you're one of the four that don't pop, that's your perfect experience and it's mm. okay like mm. it, you're still gonna have a great burn mm. you know so most people are popping but even if you don't pop it's like your experience is like wow I was in 500 degrees of heat and everybody else had that experience where they became popcorn and I'm still a kernel <laughs> mm. so I hope that those sort of stories and analogies lend to people something special is definitely happening out there it's become a lot more regulated you know it's very very different than it used to be mm. there's another side to it too I don't mean to make it sound utopian um, but it's like to me there's something that, that it, whenever I'm at Burning Man and, and I've tried to do this with Mystic too there you know I try and make it so that there's a moment at least one where I have this feeling like I wouldn't rather be anywhere else on the planet and I love my family so much, and I don't get to always, you know, go with my whole family. And um, it takes so it's gonna it takes something really, really exceptionally special for me to leave, you know, my family to be there. And I, I'm, but I'm with my larger family or my, you know, chosen family and my tribe and everything. And that's another great opportunity is it's a reunion to be with other people I love. Thank you, Jonathan. It was a beautiful place to leave it. Cosmic Cowboy, one of the founders of Kent Mystic. Jonathan, you've been amazing. Thank you for sharing your story and your wisdom. I really, really appreciate how you look at the world. Um, Oh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, thank you for doing the podcast. And, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're bringing all this wonderful stuff into the world. And I appreciate it. All right, listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions about what we discussed, anything that needs to be answered, please go to noblewarrior.com forward slash group. We'll be happy to answer those questions there. Take care now.